Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. Do you remember the movie called The Fugitive? It came out in 1993 and it starred Harrison Ford as Dr. Richard Kimball, who was unjustly accused of murdering his wife. Throughout the movie, he's working to find the real killer, but at the same time, he's the target of a nationwide manhunt led by a seasoned U.S. Marshal played by Tommy Lee Jones. It's a really good movie. In one of the scenes, probably the most famous scene, Dr. Kimball is being chased through a tunnel in a dam, and he gets to the end and stops, because it opens to a drop-off of hundreds of feet down into a huge amount of rushing water. The U.S. Marshal catches up to him, and the chase is over for Dr. Kimball, because there seems to be no way of escape. He has no way out. But then, he does the unthinkable. He jumps. The story you're about to hear kind of made me think of that kind of scenario. My guest is Adam, and he was out on a mountain hike in Hawaii, enjoying the scenery and having fun. But suddenly, in a split second, he was in a precarious spot that he never expected to be in. And he saw no way out. Real People in Unreal Situations there is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Would you consider yourself a risk taker? Absolutely. Since I was a kid, uh, growing up, climbed trees, did all the the normal stuff, Um, graduated to like going to skate parks and doing all the big jumps off the big ramps, and then when I got a little bit older and I joined the military, they either gave me a route, which was go to a clerical position or do a clerical position and jump out of planes. So <laughs> between the two, I chose the one where I could jump out of planes. We basically jump out anywhere between uh, 1,000 to 1,200 feet above ground level. And it's uh, you're pushing, what, 15 to 30 guys or more 
out at a time. I mean, it's my, one of my favorite things to do. So absolutely, I'm jumping out of planes and any military thing that we could possibly do. I love extreme sports, snowboarding in the winter. But yeah, if it, the, the riskier, the better. Uh, obviously, don't get me wrong, the older I've gotten, uh, the more that I've gotten on the responsibility side as a parent and having a career. I've kind of pulled back on the ones that I can, but absolutely, if it's uh, something I can do that has a risk attached to it, give me it. <laughs> I would guess that you have some broken bones in your history. Not one. One of the, the uh, I got to find some wood. I got to find some wood to knock on. But uh, <laughs> uh, every time I say that, it, it cracks me up because my mom and dad said, you haven't twisted one bone, one one joint, one ankle, no nothing. I've um, I've been very lucky in my entire life of all the extreme sports that I've done, no matter how hard I've hit the ground, I've already figured out a way to hit it with a way to stand up and keep going. I've not one broken bone. You know, what amazes me is what you just said when you were jumping out of planes, a thousand or 1500 feet, that is very low. I mean, typical skydivers are around 13,000 feet. So, I mean, you're almost, you've got to deploy almost as soon as you're out of the plane, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, the, the concept behind that is, so when you go and you jump the 13 to 14,000 feet, that's, you're going and you're doing fun jumps. You're jumping out either tandem. It's your first time you're wanting to go see a pretty sight. So you jump out with somebody attached to your back, they pull it, but you're, you're flying for a good minute, minute and a half before you actually throw your shoot. We actually have what we call a static line. So our, uh, our pack tray, which is kind of like the book bag, what you would think of when we stand up in the plane, before we actually jump out, we hook a hook onto a, a anchor line cable, which is a cable that is connected between the back of the plane and the front of the plane. And we all stand there and hold it. It's connected inside the plane. So the second we exit, it's pulling your pack tray open. So it deploys your parachute as you jump out. The concept of the height at that point isn't Hey, let's jump out and hang, hang free for a while before we pull. It's let's have four or five birds following each other into a, a potential combat zone. And let's get hundreds of soldiers and troops, paratroopers on the ground as quickly as possible. The second you hit that, the sky, I mean, you're 45 seconds to a minute. You're already on the ground, depending on if you jumped out with a combat load, which is, um, our big rucksacks we carry. So as long as that thing is heavy, you got your weapon. And you jump out, boom, it opens. You're already dropping 14 to 18 feet per second, hitting the ground. And you're, you're ready to go get into combat mode and start heading out. But for us, it's just kind of, it's practice. So half the time you're jumping with combat, half the time you're not. But yeah, it's not for, not necessarily for fun. Now we do it for fun. Don't get me wrong. But jumping that low is really quick to the ground. I guess, you know, obviously the whole point is to get as many troops on the ground as quickly as possible so you're not going to do a, a joyful free fall ahead of that mm -mm. nope uh, they spend most of their training with us trying to figure out how to uh, keep us from getting hurt exiting and getting hurt landing with that many people going out in spite of that what we've been talking about so far today's story is not military related even though you were in the army and are in the army and you back then you were stationed in Hawaii. And by the way, thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. This is about a hike that you uh, that you went on one day. Where was this hiking spot? Can you describe it? The hiking spot itself is called the uh, Kiana Point Trail. So if you're a family wanting to take a leisurely Saturday afternoon uh, hike, you want to get out, go enjoy the coastline. 
um, there's a hike that's on the northwestern corner of the island of Oahu, which is one of the main islands in the chain of the Hawaiian Islands. Very top corner, there's two sides you can go to. Now, the Mokalea side or the North Shore side is the side that's easiest for me to get to from the Schofield Barracks, which is where I was stationed. Or you can go all the way over to the um, Leeward side, which is on the Western coast. And if you've ever been to Hawaii, there's one road that basically travels around the outskirts of Hawaii, like one road that's just a highway. And it's a two lane road that goes along the coastline. So, I mean, you can do the, the whole island in a day, but I mean, goodness gracious, if you get caught in traffic, but you go over into the other side, because that one road, it takes hour, hour and 15 minutes just to get to that other side to go up that side of the hike. Kind of Point is known for whale watching. Everybody loves it because it's, it's, uh, it's rocky. You can bring out um, some hiking shoes and not necessarily need to have that much experience for the standard hike, but you can go three and a half miles out, go watch some whales, enjoy the, the coastline. And um, you can be you're literally walking right alongside a bunch of sand dunes and uh, the, the the coastline. You hear the water hit kind of hit the shore right there, and you got this mountain range that's hilly, has uh, sheer cliffs, and then has some that are just kind of nice gradual increases in their steepness on the edge. So it's not all just sheer. What would you call drop offs? So it's like you just got this really pretty mountain range to your left, and on the other side you got the the, the coastline and it's, I mean, being new to the island, that was one of the first hikes we did. Being an inexperienced hiker, I wanted to get kind of my feet underneath me a little bit before we got out and did some some crazier ones. But it's a, it was an enjoyable hike to do with the family if you're doing just the standard trail that's already paved out. And when you went to stay, your wife, Brooke, stayed home with the with your three young kids. How old were the kids at that time? They they were all they were all younger. They were all under ten. So these were young kids, and but you said sometimes you take the whole family and do this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we took the the kids. We put um, my youngest in one of those little backpack things. You can carry them in. Other ones would walk. You bring your water, bring your food, and put them, put the backpack and just kind of take off. So the actual trail itself, like I said, the the one that you can see paved out in front of you is there's it's flat with rocks, but it's not uh, necessarily something children couldn't do if they. I mean, walk it slow, a little persistence, but and patience on the parent side. So that day, you went uh, on your own. Take us through. First of all, uh, talk about what did you bring with you, but what happened on that day? So this was a Friday. Now for us, we work full time schedules. I mean, we're there for PT in the morning. First thing in the morning, we got to be there at zero six so or, or uh, six a.m. So anytime we get released early is a blessing because we're working long days, overnight sometimes, long hours, early mornings. And it was a Friday. So all of a sudden we get an email from our brigade commander. Um, it's going to be a full bird colonel sent out to all the commanders at the company level. It was like, hey, release your soldiers by noon, half day. So all of us hands in the air. Yes, we get a free day. So first thing I'm thinking of is what can I do to fill my time? I'm not going home and sitting on my couch in Hawaii. I just got here. I mean, this is, I got, we got there in December of 2000, end of December, 2015. And this was, um, funny enough, April 1st of 2016. So I've only been there for a few months. Um, I've only done a couple things, but by that point I was like, I want to go, I want to go out there and try to get some hikes in. And this hike that I went to was one of those ones where I've witnessed people as I was going down that hike. One of the first few times I did it, I witnessed people going up the side of that mountain and I'm like, you know what? 
I'm going to plan that for the future when I get an opportunity and my kids aren't with me. So we get a half day, I get off, I call my wife and I'm like, Hey, we got released early. What would you think if I went on a hike? Would you mind? I mean, not, she didn't mind necessarily, but she wasn't too ecstatic about me going by myself. Now she didn't know how dangerous it was. I didn't think that it was dangerous. Like I said, play back to my risk taking a hike versus what I usually do. Comparative analysis is really not that bad. So I'm like, let's go hike up the side of an embankment. Not that big a deal. So I called her and she's like, yeah, if you're going alone, uh, do you really think that's a good idea? I mean, especially with these ones in Hawaii, I kind of talked her into it. Like, it's not that bad. I'm usually pretty good at these things. I'm athletic. I've got experience in many other extreme sports. So hiking is far down on that, that risk factor list. So she's like, all right, if you feel like you're comfortable, I'm going to trust your judgment. And I uh, took it from there. So <laughs> yeah, trust my judgment after this in hindsight being 2020. I wish I would have had the opportunity to rethink this, but I ran home. We were already issued Camelbacks as part of our initial issue for the army. So I ran home, grabbed my little backpack Camelback, threw some water in it, um, got in some comfortable hiking clothes, uh, shorts and a a blue tank top and a, a cap, ball cap and some hiking shoes and walked out the door. I'm like, I'm all psyched. I'm excited. I'm like, I get to go finally do an, a, a hike with a little bit more of an edge to it without my kids. I'm like, I'm stoked. So hop in my car. I'm on Schofield Barracks at the time, which from that point to the hike is about about a 30 minute drive. And now it's not because of the distance. It's because speed limits in Hawaii tend to be extremely slow because they're on island time. Nobody's in any hurry to get anywhere because all you got is the ocean sound and you got mountains. Why rush? So uh, <laughs> hopped in the car about a 30 minute drive later, I ended up at the parking spot, which is the last, like I want to say three miles of the drive. You're just driving down the coastline. So you've got the coast literally right there on your right side. You can see it from your car. You've got this beautiful mountain range to your left and you drive by, uh, I think it's called Dillingham Airfield. It's private planes. Um, they use it for skydiving. So when you want to go to the skydiving spots and tandem jump in Hawaii, um, you get to go over there. Other than that, I it was just a, a normal drive. Nothing, nothing specific about it that stuck out other than every other drive in Hawaii where you're just in awe driving up and down the mountains because uh, there's really not a time that I took a drive in Hawaii where I was not wanting to take photos or take a, a, a live view of something as I'm driving. So I get to my spot. It's not overly packed. It's a gravel parking lot, literally probably mm, maybe two or 300 feet from the shoreline. I park right there and hop out and start heading towards my hike. Again, I don't know exactly where I'm going to cut off into the little mountain range. But uh, I, I decided that I'm just going to take it as I go. I know that there's some other places that I saw people, but um, theirs looked a little bit too, I want to say easy. I know that sounds bad, but I saw that the slant on theirs was just like, it looked like a leisurely back and forth on the ones that they did. I'm like, let's go try to find ones a little bit more m my speed. So I go down. You want to work up a sweat. Right? <laughs> I want to work up a sweat. I want to be able to say I did something and have uh, somebody go, oh man, that was awesome. And <laughs> well, people were definitely talking about this afterwards. So yeah, I guess you got what you wanted, right? They definitely were. So the, the out and back. So the hike itself, when you're going down is rocks, cars come down that if you, if you can get a pass, it's a, uh, it's like a, a national park trail. 
so you can get a, a, pa- a pass to open the the gate and drive like rocky four wheel drive vehicles down it. So it's rocky enough to where I mean you're not really running it. You're just taking taking a hike. Um, get about maybe a mile mile and a half down, and I'm kind of looking up to the left, picking my spot where I want to dip off. And now, mind you, between there and the actual starts of all the inclines, there's still brush chest high that's um, tearing into my arms as I'm going by. I didn't really plan ahead for brush. So, I mean, we're in a wife beater as I'm going out. wasn't planning that. So I get through this area where I'm kind of forging my own way. I'm pushing through the brush, get to the incline, and then I'm, I get to the base of where I want to start going up. And I'm like, all right, we're uh, gauging my route. I look up and I did find that there were other people on the range, on the mountain range. It wasn't people that I was hiking with, but there was people out there. There was not a lot of people on the trail itself at the time. So when I pulled up, I want to say that little area can hold probably a good 30, maybe 40 cars um, kind of spaced out. I only had to be about five there at the time. So it really wasn't a busy hike during that day, especially on a, a Friday, which is surprising for Hawaii because everybody usually takes off early on Fridays. I get up to the spot and I'm like, all right, they're up that way. Maybe I'll judge my trajectory based off of where they're at. Start heading up that little, there's a little switchback. Starts cutting up to the left, cuts up to the right. And at this point, there's not a lot of incline from the mountain. I get up to, there's a back and forth. I mean, you can go back. I can explain everything on the rocks, but there's really not a lot to say about getting up there. It was just a normal hike for me. I got up to the top. It was, um, like I said, me being used to heights. It only felt like a few hundred feet up. It didn't feel like anything crazy. So I get up to the top and I get to a point where... I can't really go any farther. And the, the people that I'd already seen weren't there anymore. I didn't see them. They were not around. I wasn't part of their little group. So obviously they, they were not anywhere where I could see or, or call out if I, if need be. And like I said, I was all by myself. I get to this spot kind of, I, I, it's kind of hard to describe, but um, based off of where I was at, I could not go any farther without it being any more dangerous than me traveling forward. But where I was standing with Hawaii being known as Lava Rock, or being based off lava rock, it has all these different types of rocks that you sit there and are are stepping on. So me not being experienced with the Hawaii hiking, I did not know anything about how safe it was to walk on this one or not walk on that one. Nobody told me this before. So the area that I was standing on was what I thought to be stable. Turn around and I'm taking in my view. I mean, it's Hawaii, come on. I'm going to look out and see to the left, the kind of point hike where I'd be looking at. And then the shoreline in front of me, I'm listening to the water hit on the the shoreline and I'm watching a couple people walk down the hiking trail and I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe taking it in. I was about to take some pictures, but kind of, I, I hit the top of where I wanted to hike to. And I just was looking at what I just did. All of a sudden the rock that I was standing on, I guess wasn't as stable as I was hoping. I want to say it was maybe that volcanic uh, lava rock. It broke underneath my feet and I ended up sliding. I want to say it was five to 10 feet down. I'm not a hundred percent sure from where I was at, from where I could see, but where I ended up sliding down to was enough of an embankment on my, against my back that I couldn't go back up, but luckily as I slid down, the only thing <laughs> that caught my feet was a, or kept me from going past it was a bush. That bush was growing vertically out of the side of the hill. 
and my feet landed into it. And as I kind of took in what just happened, I kind of looked around the, the base of the bush only to find that there was a steep drop off on the other side of that bush. There was an embankment that was, it's like this gray rock, this porous rock that just looked like it was a, almost a sheer drop. I'm not a hundred percent sure on the, the height, but it was 125 to 200. I, yet again, not, not sure how long before I would have hit ground. There was a, a sheer drop. You were stuck in this spot and it was more than a hundred feet off the edge. If you fell, if you fell off. Yes. There would not have been, been a chance for me to recover if I would have gone over that bush. Me being, like I've told you from the beginning, a risk taker, I don't have very many memories back that have ever come to a situation where I had no way out. I am extremely athletic. I've done, uh, when I say gymnastics, I didn't professionally do it. I just, I was very good at tumbling and doing flips. I'm very body aware from when I was younger, very athletic, did every sport under the sun. And so for me to be in a spot to where I can't climb up, I can't go left, I can't go right. And if I go down, that's the, the, my, my demise. That is my end. I, I was in a no-win scenario. And looking at that, I'm going, I have no way out of this. I have never been in a spot where I am fearful for the fact that I might not go home today. And this bush is literally the only thing keeping me from going over that edge because beyond that bush, it's still an incline that bush was coming out of the slant. So the second that bush is gone, my feet are sliding over that, the ground, the rubble that were underneath my feet, I would have gone over. When I slid down, my back was against an incline uh, that was extremely steep. So I had nowhere to go to my, my backside. To my left, there was nowhere for me to climb out there. And when I looked to my right, there was nowhere to climb out there. The only way out for me would be down. And that was not an option at the time. That would be my end. <laughs> and I had never, I had never been in a position like that before to where I had no options and I feared for my life. Now, don't get me wrong. I have done the, I mean, jumping out of plane, I'm terrified every single time that I do it, but I do it and your shoot opens, you're good. You're scared for 10 seconds as you jump, your shoot opens, you check off your block that the shoot opened, but you have a reserve. So that second parachute is your, your backup. There's no backups here. I have no rope. I got no parachute. I got nothing. There's nothing to save me. So I'm in a position to where I have nothing but this bush holding me from going over to the edge. How big was the spot you were standing on? If you were to look down a couple feet to my left and my right was enough of an incline that it wasn't so steep that I'm going off the edge. If I move my foot over there. So I mean, two feet to my left and right maybe and i'm leaning up against the incline so i'm not able to put my feet backwards anywhere i'm sitting on my foot and almost like a kind of a forced sitting indian style way except i'm sitting one foot at a time uh, as i'm sitting there i'm having to sit on my left foot and then alternate back and forth to my right foot because my knee was going numb my foot was going numb so I had to sit on one foot at a time based off of the limited space I had right there in front of that brush. I sat there and I'm like, okay, first off, I, I want to check to see if I, so I did grab my phone initially. So I grabbed it to look at it. I didn't know if I wanted to make a call yet. Do I need help? So I look at my phone and 
with the certain phone devices, they have that emergency setting where if your phone's extremely hot, it goes into that uh, temperature saving mode. So it was in that mode. I grabbed it. It was so hot. It said that it, the phone needed to cool down before I could use it. Luckily, I had ice water in my camelback. So I throw my phone into the backpack and let it sit there for a minute. All right. Well, what do I do in the midst? I mean, I'm not just going to sit here for an hour doing nothing. So I'm looking down. I see a couple people coming in front on that standard hike that was right in front of me. So I'm looking out and can they hear me? I have no clue, but I'm going to take my chances. I'm in an emergency situation. I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs. So I do that a few times. Um, I don't, I don't even know how many times I did it, but trying to scream out there and absolutely getting nothing in return, kind of common sense hit me. There is an ocean immediately to their side that that whitewash i don't know if you, i mean anybody knows the sound of the ocean being at it i mean you could be down at the ocean and screaming at somebody as long as that that whitewash hits the coastline it's loud my voice didn't carry enough to make any difference to those people down there nobody even thought to look to their left um i was waving my hands nothing it didn't help i was screaming at the top of my lungs and didn't get any assistance from anybody and I was probably doing this for 15 or 20 minutes. I'm yet again, not a hundred percent sure on the time frame here, but it seemed like forever because my phone was hot and I had no way to call anybody at that moment, even if I wanted to. It was one of the scariest things to look and see your, your lifeline to making a, a potential phone call for, for help that it's not going to be working for you right now. And I looked down at it and it just, my heart sunk. I'm like, all right, maybe I can call and get some help. And my, my, my phone being too hot just gave me this just sinking feeling in my stomach. Like, all right, there goes one of my options. So let's try screaming. I want to say it took about 20 minutes for it to actually cool down. So whenever I took it out of my camelback, it was cold. It was the actual phone was cold because I had ice and water in the, the camelback and I tucked it in between my back and the bladder of the, uh, the bag. I uh, took it out. It still had the setting, but I held it up um, in the kind of crick of my arm, like underneath it where the shade was and just kind of held it there, hoping that in the next couple minutes, it would just spark. It would just kind of come on. After a few minutes, it did. No specific time frame that I can give you on that one. It just, I looked down at it and it, it went into the original settings that it was on. And so I unlocked it. Again, the next phase of my terror moment was I looked down and go, wow, I have no service at the top, not one bar. It said no service. I don't know that, um, I don't know if um, this is standard, but being able to call 911 kind of circumvents that no service thing. It goes off specific towers and pings and has a different availability to be able to call for emergency services. But making standard calls to like my wife or friends or family, I had no service, but I didn't know that. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try regardless. I'm just going to put in 911 see if I can get it. But before I did that, there was a little bit of a, I would say a, a personal battle that I was going through. So when we got, when I got stationed in Hawaii, one of the first things they gave us on our in brief was, Hey, if you're going to go hike, enjoy the Island, do all the fun things. But there are a few unsanctioned hikes. There are a few places that are illegal. They named off a few of them. This wasn't one of them, but they wanted to let us know that um, if we were on a hike that wasn't sanctioned or wasn't illegal or that was illegal and we were caught doing it or had to receive assistance of any kind that there could be punitive action, UCMJ action against maybe going to our commander and actually have administrative be, I'm not 100% sure what they would do, but they're letting you know there's consequences to your actions. Don't do these things. 
So potentially I did not know, being a young soldier, I, I didn't know if what I was doing at that moment was falling in those guidelines of what I shouldn't be doing. And I sat there looking at my phone before I made that 911 call going, do I want to live or do I want to potentially put myself at risk with my job that I'm only at my second duty station and I want to do this for my career. So I don't want to ruin that. What do I do? Do I try to take my chances and get myself out on my own, even though I, I feel like I have no way out or do I just try and make my phone call and hope for the best? And after a little bit of uh, getting over my pride, getting over my fear of the reprisal or from punishment, what would it be? It's going to be my life. That was my choice. I'm like, I can go get another job. They can separate me from the military. I'm going to go for my own safety. It's amazing to me that you start off just going on a fun hike one day and here you are in fear for your life and making life choices like that. It's things can change so quickly. Absolutely. I, it's, I, I didn't even think I was going to be in that position. I mean, nobody plans to have something life altering happen to them that, that, at that moment. It took about, I want to say five or seven minutes before I got 911 on the call, the emergency operator answered. The Kaina Point uh, trail on the north side of the island somewhere between where you park and where you uh, where, where the point is. There was a hiking trail I went up that looked like it was a hiking trail, and it, um, it's not, and I'm kind of stuck. You're stuck. Okay. I'm stuck in a, like, a very, very steep place where I'm not going to okay. be able to get down. Yeah, I can see where, well, okay, yeah, I can see where you're at. So where did you start from? Um, right off the trail. There was a trail that led okay. right off of uh, whatever that kind of point trail is. Okay, you know what? Stand in line with me. I am going to set out trucks for you right now. Okay. Is it, I'm high. Like it's not trucks. Yeah. Well, we're gonna send trucks and probably Air One out to you. That depends on the captain. You know. Okay. Yeah. I can't move, and I honestly, this is probably the first time in my life I've ever feared for my life. Okay. Stay on the line and do not move. Okay. What is your name? Adam. Eight Adam. I really okay. just don't want to get what, in trouble with my, right. my my people I work for. Don't worry. Okay, what um trail did you start from? Um, north side Kayana Point. I don't know which, what side. It, it was the only trail I saw that split off from the road trail, and it kind of looked like it zigzagged up the mountain, and it looked uh -huh. very safe, and it okay. got really steep, and I'm an, I just I can't go back down. Okay. Okay. Let's see. All right. So, are you the only one? So you don't know I'm, the name of the trail, I, I, right? Just me. Just one. One male. Okay. Uh, 28 years old. Okay. How long have you been hiking? Um, I've hiked for a while, but this is... This no, no. How long did you start your hike from what time this morning? Uh, about 45 40 minutes seconds. ago. 45 minutes? Yes, sir. 45 minutes. Okay. How did you get to the trail? You dr uh, drove, took a bus, I drove walked? through a parking spot and walked. Okay. What kind of car do you have? Uh, Kia Sorento Black SUV. Okay, black Kia Sorento. 2011 Kia Sorento parked on the northwest entrance to the uh, where the gate is. Okay. Okay, as soon as the rescue truck starts go moving, I'm going to call, I'm going to patch you to them. So just stand in line with me. I got a few more questions for you, okay? Okay, okay. so how, okay, so your name is, you said Adam? Adam. Last name is. Okay. 
Uh, and you're how old? Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Okay. And are okay. What kind of clothes are you wearing right now? Short I'm wearing a blue um, blue tank top, American flag tank top with um, a blue and black hat, and okay. uh, cargo tan cargo shorts and red shoes. That okay, hat. Tan cargo shorts. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, I'm just gonna say you you got stuck up there, right? Yeah. And if I start going back down, it's pretty pretty um like inclined steep and yeah. it can be a severe chance of me all the down. Got lost and stuck on um I don't know what trail this is, like I'm I can't give you a great idea. There this one wasn't um there wasn't a specific name for the trail. Okay, are you hurt in any way? In uh, the not hurt. No, okay. Uh, is there any power lines on t uh, above you or anything like that? Above me, zero power lines. There's, okay, uh, good. There's, uh, yeah, there's probably maybe a good football field to my left going up the mountain is power lines that way, but nowhere near me. Okay, do you, do you have a flashlight on your phone? Uh, yeah. Just in case? Okay. All right, and do you have an alternate number that we can call you from? Right now, your number is... It's the first time I've gotten through to you guys. I've been up here okay. for a little bit. Did you try calling earlier at all? Yeah, I've call, I've tried calling uh, okay. 911 for probably the past 15 minutes. Okay, what and is the battery I, life on your phone? Um, hold on. 63%. 63%. Okay. Okay, Adam, we got trucks on the way already. As soon as the rescue truck starts responding, I'm going to patch you over, Tim. Are they responding? All right. No. Okay, um, stand the line. How long, I'm how long is going to be here? Uh, I'm going to have to guess maybe 20 minutes. Okay, what? Is it an iPhone that you're using, Adam? I am. On your cell phone, can you get to your Compass app without hanging up on me? Get on my Compass app? Yeah. I just want to get a, a lat long on where you are exactly. Just to confirm how. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you. Okay. Um, compass app. Um, or to your compass, yeah. Sorry, my phone. Sweaty, so it's not letting me press anything. Okay. Um, yes, my compass app is on. Okay. Does it does it show a display of where you're at? With, uh, like the lateral and uh, longitude. Yeah, hold on one second. For some reason, it's having to calibrate it. Oh, really? Okay. Um, latitude and longitude. It tells me 21 degrees, uh -huh. 39.55 north, 158 degrees, 225, or 2, apostrophe 25 west. Oh, apostrophe. Okay. So it says like 21 degrees, 31, apostrophe 55, then the like, quotation mark. Right. And then 158 degrees to apostrophe 25, yeah? West. Okay, west. I'm going to connect you to the rescue company right now. Oh, jeez. Oh, crap. Somebody's still there? Hello, Adam? Yes, sir.
Okay, I'm going to patch you into the rescue captain. Tell him where you're at, okay? Okay. Okay. Go ahead, Cap. Adam. Hello? Adam, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey. How much cell phone batteries do you have left on your cell? Say that again? How much cell phone batteries do you have left on your cell phone? Six percent. Six? Yeah, 62 percent. Okay. Give me your phone number. What is your phone number? Okay, how many people in your party? One. One. Just you. How old are you? Say that again. How old are you? 28. Okay, you gotta speak up a little louder. Uh, 28. 28? Yes. Okay. Are you hurt? Are you injured? Uh, no hurt, no. Just uh, hurt. Okay. When you started the trail, are you familiar with that trail? Um, I was familiar with the first part, but I tried a new part and I got stuck. I'm sorry, I didn't do that. Are you still on the trail? I'm, I'm on something. I'm on a part of the trail, but it's not, it's not safe. <laughs> it, I got stuck. It just kind of stopped. Okay, are you in a position where you can fall? Um, if I slip, probably. But I'm I'm yeah. crouched, sitting. Okay, we are we are presently going to three tunnels, so we're gonna get cut off. Okay, okay just okay, just let you know, Cap. He this caller has been trying to call us for the last thirty minutes. He just happened to get a nine one one signal. So do do we want to hang up on him or do we want to keep him on the line? His signal is bad. No, his signal his signal is good. It's just um like we can hear him, but uh, he's been trying to call nine one one for the last thirty minutes. Apparently. We do have his number, yes we do. Okay, so you guys can hang up on him and then when we get to the Hawkins and then on north outside I can call him out. After reading a paper about this a few days later, I found out that uh the emergency workers that were called to me were fighting a brush fire on the southeastern corner of Oahu at the time that this call went through. That helicopter had to be routed from another emergency back to their station to be re-rigged and back up to me. So all of this to say that I, it wasn't something small to me when I, once I found out the response that I was getting, they kept me on the phone up until a few minutes before, uh, I want to say maybe five minutes before the helicopter actually arrived on scene. But the truck was like, Hey, they were talking back and forth with the original operator and do we need to keep this guy on the phone? He's lost us a couple times. Um, is it is it imperative? So ultimately, it came to if you need us, call us back. Other than that, they'll be there in a few minutes. I got off the phone. It wasn't something I was really comfortable with doing, but I mean, they they've got other calls to make. They've already done their dispatching duties. At that point, they can't do anything else to help me. So got off the phone, sat there, waited, and. It was, like I said, about five to seven minutes before I started hearing a noise between the sound of me being able to hear the rotation of the propellers from my, my backside. It was almost instantaneously from hearing the sound of those rotors and the wind from the, them turning to where I saw them pass over my head, come straight in front of me, and then turn to their left and pause and look over and they found exactly where I was at. So they 
were almost exactly on with where I was at. They didn't even have to kind of go up and down the the shoreline looking for me. It was just that that coordinates that they received was almost spot on. The helicopter uses um, what they they actually call a, I think it's a cradle, where they they hook you in around the waist and underneath, kind of um, like you would do if you're going to go rock climbing or something like that. It's a little bit more simple because they they have to get you quick but they they made a couple passes it was windy that day especially being on the shore the the shore tends to be extremely windy because they're getting the trade winds from the the coastline the helicopter came by a couple times i want to say to gauge the wind gauge as they made their approach the wind situation are they going to get pushed back because with the position i'm at they don't have they have uh they had to get the guy to where he could swing up to me so as they made a couple passes i saw the guy getting in his position on the edge of the helicopter that he opened the door and he had his rig on and he dipped himself between the side of the helicopter and the the um the feet those the landing gear he went in between the helicopter and that dropped straight down and he, he was at this point, 15, 20 feet down and what they did they started doing is lowering him down and taking passes they took another couple passes to make sure they were close enough to get him to us. And then they, they got him out to his actual, like his distance underneath, which I'm going to say was 30 to 40 feet underneath the helicopter before he's dangling by this, this rope on his harness and they make a pass. They get him up and he reaches out for the brush, misses it and kind of swings back out. The wind, like I said, is playing a humongous factor coming off the top of those mountains. So they come back out and they make another pass it was probably, I want to say on the third pass of their actual trying to set in to where they could get him up on the edge to where he grabbed onto the brush. And then he pulled up to me and got his footing similar to mine. So he kind of put his foot next to mine and used the the bush the same way that I was using it to get his footing so that he could do his job. He's like, all right, I'm going to hold on to this. And he guided me through one hand at a time. I need for you to right now put this around your underarm. So he routed a strap underneath my left arm around my back and underneath my right arm and hooked it into his waist. So at his belt buckle was where his harness where I hook into. He handed me another strap, which that strap went behind me and underneath my back and then straight up through the center and hooked back in underneath his waist. And this whole time I'm sitting there. I mean, I'm looking up, there's a helicopter. I'm looking at this rescue guy and I'm looking at the drop and I'm thinking, all right, again, I love risk, but this scares the crap out of me. Like, are you kidding me? I'm about to dangle like a dope on a rope hanging from this helicopter. And we're this distance up in the, the air. I just, I mean, I had every anxiety factor, every panic factor going off. My, my senses, my nerves are just railing. I truly am thankful and grateful for the attentiveness that that rescue worker gave to me at that moment, because it wasn't like he was not understanding of my position. He was, Hey, Hey, it's going to be cool. Hey, it's going to be okay. I understand you're scared. You're, you're now hooked in at no point. Will you fall at this point forward? He said, we're going to go on a lovely scenic ride, made a couple jokes. He's like, people got to pay hundreds of dollars for this stuff and you're getting it for free. I love that guy. Yeah, he was very calm and cool. He had fun with his job, but he at the same time was reassuring. And for somebody who's at a point where they think that they're not going to make it home, he was who I needed at that moment. And he started giving commands back up through his little um, 
ear thing and through his uh mic on his headphone and then through his hand signals he's like all right we're good to go did and then he coached me he's like all right we're gonna lift up we're gonna go up about five to ten feet clear everything and then they're gonna take us out from the mountain and then as we get closer to the shoreline they're gonna start to skirt the shoreline and we're gonna go all the way down to an open field where they're gonna set us down and once we get there i'll tell you what to do he said just take this moment to just hold on and basically the the, the position that i was in I'll, I'll explain it to you because i mean in a normal scenario, it would be a little bit compromising because, I mean, it's not the best thing to sit there face first in some dude's crotch. But in this moment, you don't really care what you're doing. Um, when he lifted up, <laughs> I'm sitting there. And when I said belt, those buckles are going into his his belt line. That means that I'm holding my arms and elbows around his thighs facing his belly. And he said, grip my thighs for dear life as we're lifting up. And then you can relax as we start coasting. So I grip, I'm facing this dude's belly. And then all of a sudden we get up, take off and start coasting. And if it wasn't for this being a horrible day, I would have loved that view. Cause I mean, I'm hundreds of feet in the air getting a, a shoreline dangle over Hawaii and off from a helicopter. And I was getting rescued, but I was uh, trying to take it in at the same time. Uh, we go from that moment. We, it, it's, five minutes he they kind of take a slow flight because if they go too fast we start swinging towards the back and there's oscillation that can happen so we can swing back and forth not not too safe with landing so with the speed they took they made sure that they went they went safe and they didn't have us swinging back so far about five minute flight and we get to this open field and it's closer towards the the north shore of hawaii away from the hike itself and they start coming down and as we're coming down he's coaching me he's like all right as we come down, you're going to be the first one to hit. What he's like, what I want you to do is slowly let your heels hit, let your butt hit, let your back hit. He's like, you ever jumped out of a plane? And I'm like, yeah, I do this for a living. He's like, then you should get this. He's like, you should understand what we're doing. He said, but it's going to be a lot slower. So he's like, just lay on your back and I'll stand. And as I stand up, I'll unhook you and you can stand up. So we go through the motions. It happens. They slowly set down. I lay on my back. And at that moment, the bird like unhooks us. They reel that cable back in and it takes over to the, it, the helicopter kind of swoops over to the side and which this is, like I said, enough of an open field where they find their landing spot. They land and we land with, there's a couple fire trucks that were there. I don't know exactly what station they were from, but that station that was dispatched out was already there waiting on me to reassure, take me in and look to make sure that I was happy, healthy, and there were no injuries. But yeah, that was the, that was the actual rescue story up until that point and where I kind of got, got reconvened with the, uh, the, the gentleman who rescued me and was able to kind of tell him, thank you. I wasn't all there at that, <laughs> at that moment. It took me a minute to move away from that. Uh, what would you call it? It was, I was struck. I was just, I was, I just came from a, a terrifying event and I wasn't all there mentally. It was, it was it was scary and my brain hadn't yet reset and it was like you're okay there wasn't a you're okay moment and he was they, they were all very very attentive you're, you're still uh you still got the adrenaline surging oh yeah so it takes it it takes some time to come down from that for sure it took a few minutes because they i was about a mile further down the road from where i parked or it was a couple miles i'm not 100 percent sure but it was they basically they flew over my car and where they dropped me, it was a few miles past it. So 
they actually had to drive me back to my car. So one of the fire trucks put me in the back of the engine with him, checked. They were doing kind of vitals and stuff, making sure I was good, asking me questions, and then got some of my personal information for their reports. And I got back to the car and I stood outside my car for a minute and sat on the hood and gathered myself because I still, like I said, hadn't realized or didn't, didn't understand that everything was done. And my, like you said, adrenaline pumping through, I was still in that panic state. And I'm like, okay, am I good to drive? All right, cool. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to head home. So I get in the car and I get on the phone, give her a call. And I'm like, I need, I need to tell you something that just happened. That phone call, I think was where the emotions came out because I had probably one of the hardest times talking through, I think it was a little bit of a breakdown time where I think my body decided to accept the fact that shock moment's gone. What just happened is settling in and I was trying to talk through it and she's like, you could tell (laughs) she was not understanding how severe it was because I was talking through it. And when she realized that, that, that emotion was there, the severity of it hit it. It was like, Adam, what is going on? What happened? And I'm like, give me a second to breathe. And once I did, I kind of talked through everything and explained that I went on the hike and I didn't even dive into details. I, I slept, got in a spot. I couldn't get out and I had to get rescued. I just got airlifted off the side of a mountain. That was it. I couldn't no no details. Cause my, I mean, I, I didn't want to sit there and try to go reliving everything at that moment yet. And I, it was kind of one of those things where you're thinking, I just survived something and I'm very grateful, but also emotional at the same time. And she, you, you could tell on her end that she was receiving uh, the severity of it based off of her responses to me. I mean, she was being calm, caring, wasn't trying to, to spike how I was feeling, but you could tell she was trying to gather her information from me. Let's hear from Brooke and what she thought about that phone call. So I got this phone call from Adam and I was, I believe in the kitchen with the kids. I heard my phone ring. I answered it. And the first thing he said was, I'm okay, but, and I thought, oh God, what is he about to tell me? He said, I was stuck on the side of a cliff and I had to be air rescued off, but I'm okay. And, you know, my reaction to that was really a multitude of things. I, uh, initially, it was like the feeling that you get whenever you go over the top of a roller coaster and your stomach drops. And I felt hotness all over my body because I thought, this can't be real. Like, I know this happens to people, but not me. Like, I told him before he went on the hike the rule of thumb in hiking is that you don't go hiking alone. They have it on all of the pages on Facebook for the hiking groups and it's just something you don't do. So before he left and asked if he could go hiking, I said, no, I I don't know how I feel about you going alone. Are you sure you want to go alone? And he was like, oh yeah, it's an easy hike. I'll be fine. I was like, okay, well, have fun. Be careful. So when I got that call, I was thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I told you not to go hiking alone and you went and then you get stuck. That's why we don't hike alone. But uh, it was, it was really scary. You know, even though he said that he was fine, it was still, you know, something you don't expect to hear when you answer the phone. Was there any repercussions from the army about uh, you going on that trail? 
No, there there wasn't. So to come to find out, there was no fine. I found out there was no fine from the fire department there for, to, be, to be rescued. If the trail was labeled as an illegal hike, there would have been, and come to find out, it's around $1,500. On top of that, there would be potential charges that they file against you as well. But luckily, it was just a hike. I needed help. They rescued. They made a report. And they went on to continue on with the rest of the day. But once, uh, so I, after I was done on that call with my wife, I was, uh, at the time my rank was specialist. So I wasn't uh, that at yet at that point yet a, um, a sergeant. I, w- I had not been promoted yet to a position to where I had any soldiers. So the person who was my direct line, first line supervisor, as we call him, she was a E5 or a sergeant called her and I'm like, Hey, I need to tell you something. I know we were just released but I need to tell you something that happened just in case there's a report or just in case they let the army know. Cause they did get my military ID, ID and took some information down Said I don't know if it will come down, but I want to warn you. I did a, a hike. I got in a position that I needed to be helped and I was helped. I was rescued by the, the fire department. And she said, are you okay? I said, yes. She said, and you're safe. I said, yes. She's like, okay, well there's, as long as you are not hurt, it was one of those, everything's okay now. Why worry them? Because it's just going to cause more harm than good. So she said, just, well, do better from this point forward on if you're going to gauge where you're going and having somebody with you and looking into the hike before. So it's kind of what we do is a risk reduction management tool in the military. You look at what you're going to do and determine the, the risk factors and how you mitigate those. And can we control them? If not, don't go or try to go somewhere else. And she's like, let's, let's try to apply that next time. Glad you're okay, and we'll see you on Monday. And that was basically the the skinny short of it. There was no further investigation. Nobody looked into it. No penalties. So what I was worrying about, sitting there determining whether or not it's my life or my career, came to a three or four minute phone call. I'm glad you're okay. Just don't do it again. And that's the best outcome you could have even possibly hoped for. Absolutely. I was expecting to be tore apart, but I think at the same time, the individual who I'm speaking of tends to be day-to-day more rough, more harsh. It's the military. That's kind of the environment we're in. But in that moment, she was uh, more caring and she put forth empathy towards my feelings and she could tell that I was I was going through something. So she wasn't going to come down on me at that moment. It was just make smarter choices from this point forward. I'm glad you're okay. Go be with your family. So you didn't have any uh, medical problems or injuries at all from this? I didn't. Nothing physical. I will say and being the one of the, like I said, this being the first event that I've gone through that had this much of a, a shock and awe factor to a life or death scenario, it took me a few days emotionally to come back around. I felt quiet, calm, distant. I was contemplating mentally a lot of the stuff that I went through. And you kind of start taking stock of like some things that are, I mean, you start looking at what's important in your life because I just went through something. It's like you start cutting out that chaff, the stuff that just takes up your time, wastes time and start enjoying things that maybe you overlooked before. So physically I was okay, but emotionally it, it, it took a toll for a few days and it helped me to kind of take a second look at who I am and my priorities. Yeah. That's one of the things I was wondering about because you know, a lot of people after having been through a, what they perceived as a life threatening experience, eventually get diagnosed with PTSD and even more than a few days, it could be years later. So, but you're, you're doing okay though. How, how long has it been now since this happened? 2016. So five years. 
Oh, no, six years, six years, sorry. Yeah, six years at April 1st, it will be six. That's kind of the one, one of the funny things about the story. It happened on April Fool's Day. Did you, <laughs> whenever you tell them the story, do you, did you get people saying, yeah, yeah, right, I get it, it's a joke? Actually, yes, every single time that I've brought it up, I, I'm like, all right, I promise you this story happened. It just so happened to happen on the day that you would think I'm going to make the story up for. And I said, but I've got proof. <laughs> when a rescue happens like this, does the fire department or the, uh, I guess the, the helicopter was also part of the fire department, right? It was, yes, or it is, yes. It's a dual purpose helicopter. So they, they're usually there for fighting brush because it is a dry, uh, tends to be dry areas on certain sides of the mountain area. So they do brush fires and, and rescues. That's their main purpose. Like that's what they're known for. That helicopter, when you see it flying, you're like, all right, who's going to get rescued? Do they normally send a bill to the person that got rescued? I did not receive one. And I'm not 100% sure if they do because I know for ambulances, you take an ambulance ride, you get a bill. I don't know about the fire department since that's the, the state funded and it's not a private private um, venture for people to make money. It is a state funded thing. So not sure if that's something that they normally practice, but I did not receive one. I just received i I'm glad you're okay. And I never heard from them again. This is Scott jumping in for just a minute. As Adam and Brooke and I were working out the details about recording this conversation, I mentioned that I had acquired the audio of the 911 call that Adam had made from where he was stuck. And of course, they wanted to hear it. So I sent it to them. And they sat down together and listened to that call, the one you heard just a few minutes ago. And I was curious about how Brooke felt when she listened to that audio. You know, I listened. That was the first time I had ever heard the 911 call. And I'm actually a 911 dispatcher. So I do a lot of 911 calls every day. And being on the other side of it was, uh, it, it was a interesting experience to say the least. Uh, hearing my husband actually sound like in a situation where he doesn't know what to do. And like, you know, he is a risk taker. He does things that, most people wouldn't even think to do, but hearing him be stuck and, and having some form of fear in his voice and knowing, thinking about what he was feeling whenever he was in that situation and hearing it firsthand was very emotional because, you know, that's my husband. <laughs> I was sitting at home while that was happening, probably feeding the kids or turning on something for them to listen to. And he's on the side of a cliff. I mean, it was just hearing it firsthand thinking, you know, I had no idea this was happening whenever it was. And it was very jarring it, hearing him firsthand being so, you know, fight or flight stuck on the side of a cliff, not knowing what to do. And then also it was kind of cool hearing the other side too, because like I said, I do 911 dispatch. So hearing the way they handled things and I thought the person that talked to him did a fabulous job because they were very calming and his, he didn't sound panicked. He didn't feed off of Adam's emotion, even though Adam was pretty well put together being his wife. I still know I could still hear that fear in his voice. I, I know the difference. It, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool hearing it because I felt like the guy that spoke to him did a really great job of 
keeping him calm and sounding like he had control of the situation and equally as emotional because that's the first time I had ever heard it and imagining the fear that he felt and hearing it in his voice was uh, a different experience. (laughs) And to close out my conversation with Adam, I had one more question. How did you tell your kids? I'm wondering how they reacted to this or what, what questions they might have had. I came at it slow. Uh, I didn't want it to be a traumatic event for them. I wanted them to hear, hey, something crazy happened to your dad today. Because the last thing I wanted to do was have them feel how much it affected me. So it was like one of those things that me and her approach is just a slow conversation. We didn't want to make it out to be some huge event. So I think it was in passing. Kids were asking, What's, is that, that okay? What's wrong? He just kind of went through something today. Uh, I think it's the way that she approached it. And they're like, so what, what happened? And I think, I don't know if we told them that night or if it was a couple of days later, but I do know that it was like, all right, so just in case you guys hear about it or it, you can kind of see me walking around a little bit off, um, I did have to get rescued off the side. And it was funny because how they approached it wasn't necessarily, oh, are you Okay. Because they could see I'm standing in front of them. They know I'm okay. All they cared about was the helicopter, and I got to dangle from a helicopter. They thought that that was the coolest thing. So <laughs> I, it, the conversation turned out to be a lot better than I expected because at the end of it, it wasn't, this is horrible. How how did this happen? Oh, I'm so sorry, Dad. Your kids aren't really looking towards the um, trying to understand your thoughts and feelings. They're like, all right, you're alive. You're in front of me. So obviously you made it through. How was the helicopter? Was that cool? <laughs> I thought it was funny. I thought as, as my, it's a childlike reaction and that's all, that's all I could hope for. Cause even today, the young ones still don't really understand it. I have to remind them that this happened to me. And when I told them I was um, going to be talking about it, their same reaction was, is, Oh, what happened? So obviously it's not that traumatic of an event for them. Maybe in a few years they can listen to this podcast and they'll know what really happened. Uh, Hopefully, yeah. Adam's wife, Brooke, is a listener to this podcast, and it was her idea to have Adam come on and talk about what happened to him. So I want to say thanks to Brooke for suggesting this story. And if you like this episode, you might like episode 76, which is called Gil Fell Off a Cliff. In that one, Gil didn't have the good fortune to catch a bush on the way down. And I had kind of pulled myself up and I could see that there was blood all over where I'd landed. And I think the first thing I felt was my face and my lip had split completely down the middle. And it was so widely split open that actually felt to me like my lip was missing. It felt like I had completely bitten off my lip. So check it out again. That's episode 76 and it came out about a year ago. Well, I have a big announcement. Our podcast listener group is moving back to Facebook. I know, you're probably thinking, what? Come on, Scott, make up your mind. And yeah, I get it. But let me give you the whole story. As of a few months ago, we had over 2,000 listeners in the Facebook group, and I made the decision to change our platform to a separate place because I really wanted to get away from Facebook for a variety of reasons that I won't go into here. So, we had our own online place where we could meet, 
chat, share things, all that stuff. And it does work really well. I don't really have any complaints about the service itself. The problem boils down to this. It's a separate place. Everyone's already on Facebook, or almost everyone, anyway. So to be really involved in this community of listeners, you had to remember to go to this other place. And for a lot of people, it just didn't happen. Sure, we've had hundreds of people join the new community, but having everything over there just made it difficult, and it just didn't feel the same. So not too long ago, I took a poll in that group, and I asked people what they thought. And it came out that over 80% of the members either didn't have a preference or liked the original Facebook group better. Only about 17% liked the new community. And honestly, that's kind of what I expected. But then there was another reason. One of the listeners who joined the new community is Barbara, and she's completely blind. I asked her how the new platform compared to the Facebook group in terms of how easy they are to navigate around without sight. Well, Barbara told me that the Facebook groups are a breeze, very easy for a blind person to use. And this new platform was nearly impossible. It's created without really any thought given to users who can't see the screen. And of course, this is something I would never have realized, so I appreciate Barbara telling me that. I want to make the podcast and the listener groups as inclusive as possible. That's why we're also having all of the episodes transcribed, so that people who are hearing challenged can enjoy the content as much as everyone else. So with that said, the Facebook group is back open. The vast majority of people who were members there are still in that group anyway, so it'll be a pretty easy transition. There are some downsides to it, but we'll just put up with it. If there comes a day when the group gets shut down by Facebook, so be it. That's a good reason to be on my email list, so I can still communicate with you if that happens. So if you're not already in the Facebook group, you can join at whatwasthatlike.com Facebook. Okay, enough of that stuff. Before we get to this week's listener story, I wanted to let you know that there's a new raw audio episode out. This one is episode 22. It includes 911 audio from a man who was threatening suicide. All right, Don, what kind of gun do you have? It doesn't matter what kind of gun I got. They're all dead, and then when you get here, I'll shoot myself, and then you figure out what kind of gun it is. An elderly gentleman who was confused because he just witnessed a crime. Okay, what's the road name, sir? Uh, my God, I don't know. I just moved here. I don't know. Okay, can you give the phone to someone that does know? He won't, he won't come because he's the one that did it. And a young man who was upset because of what he said his girlfriend had just done. And what's going on there, Hunter? She jumped through. Balcony. She jumped off the 12th floor balcony? Yes. Yes. The raw audio episodes are bonus exclusive shows that have actual 911 calls and the stories that go with them. You can binge all 22 episodes just by being a supporter of this podcast for $5 a month. Not to mention, you get the satisfaction of being a supporter of What Was That Like? Sign up at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, here we are at this week's listener story. And it's actually from this week's main guest, Adam. This story also happened in Hawaii, but it's completely unrelated to his mountainside rescue. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks.
I was stationed in Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, on the island of Oahu, morning of January 13th, 2018. My son and I got up for what we thought was going to be a normal morning, uh, have some breakfast. Uh, he wanted to play some video games with me, so we're going to play Madden. And my wife and kids just so happened to be on a vacation back in the States in Florida. So it was going to be a nice, quiet morning. So got up, made breakfast, ate, and then got on the Xbox to play some video games. Looked over, saw my phone next to me. I was sitting on the island in the kitchen looking into the living room playing, and I see a bunch of messages and alerts on my phone, so I unlock it. The first thing that pops up isn't even those missed calls or messages. What is it? It's an emergency alert. I've never received any of those, so first thing it said was a ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Be an active duty military member, you see this is not a drill. It sets off a little alarm in you because uh, that obviously means they're, they're not playing. This is real. So I call my wife. I run outside. I'm looking towards the western side of the island because uh, being where we are in the Pacific, that's where you would make an assumption that this is that's where this is going to be coming from. And um, I didn't know what I was going to see, obviously, but uh, you, you're not really thinking at that point. All my senses were heightened. I was kind of freaking out. So I, I call my wife. I'm asking if this is real. I'm asking what she's heard. I'm freaking out. I grab my son and we hop in the car. I'm like, all right, where can I go? I'm thinking, do I need to go over to my unit? Do I need to go and just seek shelter? What What am I going to do? So on post, we have shopping areas and um, grocery stores that we call commissaries. And the PX is that shopping area. I'm like, let's go into one of those big buildings. So we start driving towards the PX. On the way there, we see MPs passing us with megaphones saying, um, seek shelter. This is not a drill. Get get to safety. So we finally park, run inside. We find a place behind one of the portable ATMs and we start calling family. Nobody's picking up. I get a hold of my brother and I'm saying goodbye. I got to talk to my wife. And again, I said goodbye. It was just, it was one of those times where, uh, first time actually in my life where I felt like I was never going to see my wife again, my kids again. And it was real because there was something that was telling me this is not a drill. This is real. There is a missile inbound and there's not that many uh, military locations that are in our area so obviously it's going to be us if they're aiming for a military central to the island and uh, we were just we're freaking out so i'm making our phone calls and making all of our plans to say our goodbyes about 38 minutes from the original text we get one that says emergency alert there is no missile threat or danger to the state of hawaii repeat false alarm so a bunch of people are walking around inside the, the, the store going, it's a false alarm, everybody, it's a false alarm. And by this point, it doesn't really matter who's saying it's a false alarm. You've already kind of thrown your emotions for a loop. But yeah, that was probably one of the, the worst scares that I've been through in my life, having to sit there and hold my son and wonder if I'm going to be able to make it through the rest of the day to see tomorrow. Uh...